say I love this book. It's, it's, it's an action-packed book. There's five chapters that are in it. It talks about so many different things. And, and we've been talking about ready. I mean, finding strength for today, hope for tomorrow, because we do need strength for today. I, I don't know about you. I need strength all the time to, to get through the daily chores that I have, to daily, day-to-day things that we're going through, um, and, and hope. There needs to be hope, because right now when I look at the headlines, there's not a lot of hope. And I have to remember to put my hope in God and Him alone. But as I, as I look at this book, it's talking about being ready. And I think about being ready. I, I was meditating on this, and I was reminded of a story about my grandfather. My, my grandfather, uh, for those who don't know, was a pastor. And, and he, he had become a pastor right after he, in his early 40s. He became a Christian when he was 40. And then he felt the call of God to go into ministry not too long after that. But he told me about his very first sermon. I remember the first time I preached, I was 18 years old. I was a young guy, didn't know what I was doing, but they wanted me to preach because I just felt this call of God in my life. I'd, I'd gotten, uh, become a Christian in uh, January of my senior year of high school. By November, they had me in a pulpit. Uh, and I, I think they just were, I was so excited, I wanted to share and I was like, a, I was like a, a dog chasing a car. It's like I, I was so excited. I didn't know what I'd, I'd do, though, if I caught it. But I got ready to preach, and my grandfather talked about being ready. And I said, I, I didn't know how to prepare a sermon. I didn't know how to do anything. And he said, well, you have more time to get ready for this sermon than I had for my first sermon. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I had just become a Christian for a very short time. And he said, I was sitting in the pew. And, and at that period of time, they would have processionals to come to the service. And the pastor would walk in and the choir would walk in with him and they would be in robes and things like that. And so he said, they're walking the processional and I'm sitting right like almost where, where Jacob Dahl is sitting. And the pastor stops and leans over and he goes, Hank, I have laryngitis. You're going to have to preach today. He goes, so I had from the pew to the pulpit to come up with my whole sermon. Now, I thought of that. I thought of that. Wow, you got to be ready. And, and there's a saying, if you're a pastor, you have to be ready to do three things at all times. You have to be ready to preach, you have to be ready to pray, and you have to be ready to, for my pastor friends, die. Preach, pray, die. That's what they say. You've got to be ready to go at any time. And in some ways, I think Paul's writing to this group saying, this is what it's like being ready. I mean, he's talking to the Thessalonians. Remember, he's trying to encourage these people. These guys are new believers. These guys are not scholars. They're not great orators. They're not theologians. These are ordinary people that have come to know an extraordinary God. And their lives have been transformed. And Paul is writing to encourage them. But he's also, he, remember, he couldn't stay there very long. After he had done his ministry, and we're not exactly sure how long he'd been there, some say that he, I mean, we know that he reasoned for three Sabbath days. Now, that could mean three weeks, but some scholars believe that it was at least three months. I mean, three months or several months, but it was under a year. And so he is then removed um, because there's a riot that develops. People are getting jealous of the influence that he has. People are turning to Christ. Their lives are being changed. That costs people money because they're turning from idolatry. And there are people that made the idols. That's their income. So that they're angry. They push him out. I mean, there's all this stuff that's going on. So Paul leaves not knowing really how mature and established these people are. And so it's the middle of a foxhole. This is the middle of war. He doesn't know exactly what his happened with these people. How have they been established? Have they been caught off guard? And he, he receives this report from Timothy that things all is well. Matter of fact, their faith is growing like crazy. And he's really excited about it. And he, he writes to them to give them a defense of the gospel, but he's also showing them a lot more. He's showing them a lot about himself, what it means to be a leadership, but there's greater principles for us who are seeking to do ministry and how we are to live and, in essence, be ready to, to, to be usable for what God has for us. And that's what we're going to look at today. How can we can be at the ready 
at a moment's notice. Because we need to be ready. We need to be ready to preach, pray, not just pastors, but die. And we think, oh, that's just for pastors. Well, you know, I was in Israel in 1998. And one of the things that I found out really quickly when I was in Israel and, uh, was that they had citizens. There, you're 18 years of age, male or female, you are drafted into the army whether you like it or not. Everyone is drafted into the Israeli army. And then when you get out, the reason is is because it's a very small nation and that they needed to be ready to fight at a moment's notice. So if they were to go to war, their whole population is ready to fight. And that's how we, our Christians, are to be. We're to be ready. We're to be trained. We're to be willing and usable for whatever God has for us. So today, that's what we're going to look at. How can we be at the ready for all that God has for us in Christ? So before we go any further, let's pause asking for God's blessing on our message time. Lord, we come to you today asking you to speak to us. Lord, let it not be in my voice, but let it be your voice. Let your word cut through all of our misunderstandings, all of our, our linguistic problems, all of our technical issues. Uh, Lord, any of our things that, anything that can keep us from hearing who you, and who you are and what it is that you want from us. And how we are to live in such a way that brings you glory and increases our joy. Lord, speak to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at our text. We are in verse chapter, I mean, chapter 2, verse 1. And Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. See, first that Paul is saying, he's like, I'm going to give you a defense of my ministry right now. There apparently had been some accusations that were labeled at Paul. And he's giving now a defense of his ministry. And he's showing that, you know what, you're going to face difficulties in your ministry. I want you to be aware of that. And you, and you need to be ready to see how we are to respond. And Paul kind of explains. He identifies the marks of his effective ministry. He gives us some marks, some things that we can look at and see that his ministry has been effective. So we have these marks of effective ministry. And in order for us to, before we can even see the marks, we have to get some un- understanding of things. It's going to take some clarity. That's what Paul says here. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. We have a tendency as people who are servants of Christ, we do ministry, we get excited about it, and we want to see life change right away. And the reality is, is a lot of the stuff that's happening is under the surface. And we need to get a right perspective. We need clarity. We need God's perspective on things. And it requires clarity. It requires us to go back to the Word of God. Don't always look at the responses of people because what's going on under the surface doesn't always show on their face. I mean, sometimes we think people are really far from God, and we find out that God is working something deep in their heart. So we need clarity, and that's what Paul is saying. Our work, with you, our work has not been in vain. Don't think it's been in vain, because God has worked. You are our letter. You are our product. Look what's happened in your lives. We need to be reminded of that as believers, that God is doing something that we cannot always see, that God has heard your prayers, that God is going to reward your ministry. That's why Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good, because in due time you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Don't give up. Don't, you might think that you are the only one in your family. You might think that your ministry has failed. But keep on. Keep walking, and God will reward that. God will reward your ministry. Don't give up. And Paul is, Paul is saying, in order for us to identify these marks, it's going to require some clarity. And, and he also wants us to understand that this mark really, though, involves some courage. You've got to have courage to do a real effective ministry. That's what Paul is saying to us. Notice the text again. He goes, For though we already suffered and have been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You know that? We're going to experience conflict. 
but we need to have courage to face it. See, we have this tendency to think if there's opposition, we just cave. No, he's saying there was conflict going on around us. We need courage. As Christians, we need courage. You know, Jesus, as G.K. Chesterton, who was a great British author, he said um, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be completely fearless. They need to be bold. They need to be courageous. They would be absurdly happy, and they would be in constant trouble. I like that. Completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. Because, see, we are. If we are doing the ministry that God has for us, we're going to find out that there's going to be a lot of stuff going on around us. People are going to question us. They're not going to like what we're going to have to say. And it's going to take us, you're going to have to be courageous to be able to speak out. See, we have a tendency to want to follow the crowd. We want to fit in with everybody else. We don't want to stick out. But God is saying, no, I'm not calling you to be a thermometer. I'm calling you to be a thermostat, to change the spiritual temperature in the room, not reflect what's going on around you. And it's going to take courage on your part. And it took courage for the disciples. We have this tendency to think these guys were always fearless. They weren't. They weren't at all. These were, as the Scripture says, uneducated, ordinary men. And remember, they were hiding after Jesus had died and was buried. They were hiding in the upper room. They were fearful. But then Jesus appears to them, and he, they are transformed, by the way. So much so that in Acts chapter 4, remember, they were afraid of the Sanhedrin and the, the religious authorities. Now they are testifying to the religious authorities, and the authorities are astonished. And they make note that these were uneducated, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, they are uneducated, ordinary men. But they make a special note. They had been with Jesus. See, when you're with Jesus, when you're walking with Jesus, we become courageous. The more that we take in the things of God, the more courageous that we become to testify on His behalf. Because we know that the gospel is real. And that we need to challenge that because people are going to try to silence you. They're going to try to intimidate you. They're going to try to make you look like you're uneducated or you're not with it or you're not having fun or you're the, you know, you're the fun police. You're here to stop it and keep them from having fun. No, that's not what it is at all. Matter of fact, a Christian should be known by their joy and the the fact that they can have fun more than anybody. So we need to make sure that we have clarity And a a mark, a definite hallmark of ministry that we should have is courage. And we also need to recognize that if we're really doing ministry, there will often be conflict. Conflict. Conflict is unavoidable. We think that if we're doing ministry and we experience conflict, then something must be wrong. Now, many of us, we get excited about ministry. I want to do this ministry. It's going to be great. I have all these ideas. And we go into a meeting and we interact with people, and they don't like our ideas as much as we think they should like our ideas. And they should get with the program because we know what we're talking about, and we're excited about it. And then we find out that there's conflict. There's conflict within, there's conflict without. And finally, we just get so tired of managing the personalities and people's schedules, we throw up our hands in the air and we're like, we're done. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to sit down. Let me tell you, ministry is hard. Ministry is hard. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's what we just said there, what G.K. Chesterton said before. Completely fearless, absurdly happy, and in constant trouble. We're going to have trouble. Do you know why we're going to have conflict? Because you are proclaiming the kingdom of God. And whatever God claims something for his kingdom, Satan will try to counterclaim it. 
And Satan doesn't like it when God's kingdom comes into conflict with his kingdom. So he will have a counterattack. So if you're going after one of his people that the scripture says that are in captivity, that are spiritually blind, then he's not going to like it. And he's going to respond. He's going to touch people. He's going to bring situations. He's going to try to intimidate you into silence. He has no problem with you going to church. He has no problem with you doing your thing. But as soon as you interact on his territory and you go in, he then responds. I mean, he wants to come into your territory, but he doesn't like it when he comes into his. We have to remember that. There are kingdoms in conflict with one another. And that when the kingdom of God comes into the conflict with the kingdom of the evil one, people are going to respond in the negative. Why? Because he's claiming absolute truth. Lives are being changed. People are leaving their life of sin. They are embracing righteousness. There is a transformation, and he hates that. We have to remember that. It's our, remember, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the principality. It's the powers. It's a spiritual battle that we are in. And there will often be conflict. And Paul is saying that in, the, in verse 2. He says, we were shamefully treated. Actually, beginning of verse 2. Though we'd already suffered. They'd suffered. They'd been beaten and been shamefully treated. People mocked them. I mean, you're going to be shamefully treated. People are going to say that you're dumb, that you're uneducated, that you're not with it, that you're intolerant. They're going to throw whatever label at you they can to try to intimidate you into silence. And you must know that it's not their labels that matter. It's God's. And those are words, their words are words of desperation and fear. Ours are words of hope. So we're going to have conflict. But notice, verse 3, there's a change. He's gone from a defense of his ministry to check and, and, and reveal the motives for his ministry. And we have to check our motives on why we do ministry. Why do we do what we do? Paul's saying here, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error. Now, as we look at our motives, we have to ask ourselves several questions uh, to evaluate ourselves of why we're help, trying to help people. And they, there's all these labels that are made to Paul. I mean, accusations that are thrown at him. And we're, as Christians, we're going to have that. Matter of fact, we were discussing with a friend of ours recently that um, uh, we've been witnessing to for some time, and we're riding in the car, and I'm sharing the gospel with him, and we're, we're life on life, and I spend a lot of time with him. And he said, you have to understand something, Pastor. He comes from a Muslim background, and he says that the people that I interact with, he goes, uh, that they believe that you pay people to convert to Christianity. And I said, What? He goes, yeah, they believe that you pay people to convert. He says, that's why you help people. And I went, wait a minute, we don't pay people to convert to Christianity. That's, that's false. He goes, but they, they think that's why you're doing these righteous deeds is that they'll convert. And I went, that's true. We do do righteous deeds so that people will see Christ in us and that they would turn from their sin and embrace him. We don't pay people. We don't manipulate people to do that. And we're going to have that. People are always going to question your motives. Why are you talking about Jesus? Why are you telling us about him? Because they're trying to figure out why. And some people, as the Scripture says, to the pure all things are pure, but to the vile and unbelieving nothing is pure. So if, you, if people are really soiled in their own heart, then they're going to think your motives are also soiled. And you have a reason to manipulate or control or whatever it is. They're trying to figure out what's your deal. Because they can't contri- believe 
that a person would love Jesus so much that they would speak to them about it and not have an ulterior motive. So we need to check our motives. And we have to ask ourselves some questions. And I believe I've come up with some questions based on what Paul says here. He says, our appeal does not spring from, first of all, error. Error. Now, here's the the error. The idea there is that it's a mistake in your belief system. Is there a mistake in your theology? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Is there a mistake in my theology and what I believe about God? And Paul is saying, I don't have that. There's not a mistake in it. I'm not doing this to gain God's favor. I'm not doing this to, I mean, to curry and get points with God because all of the favor that we have with Christ has come because of what He has done, not what we have done. See, the Scripture says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the sight of God. They're like filthy rags. No matter how, good, how much good you do, they're filthy rags in the sight of God. When they, when they stink of self-righteousness, when you do it to be made self-righteous, then they're their stench in the nostrils of God. He's saying to us, no, 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 no. You have to check your motives. Why are you doing this? Is it to, uh, you already have God's favor. You have to make sure that you're, you're, you're right. It's not out of error that we share about Jesus. That's the first thing we have to ask ourselves. Here's the second question. Paul says, um, he says, error or impurity. Impurity. Now the word there literally means un cleanness or, un, uh, or a moral uh, immorality of some sort. The Greek word carries the idea of moral impurity. Now, this could apply to several behaviors, but it springs from having basically a pretty messed up life. And if you want to find out your motives, then ask yourself if you have a messed up life. And what I mean by that is this. Are you sharing the gospel, but you really don't have, I mean, you really have ulterior motives. You don't want people to know that it really hasn't penetrated the essence of who you are. See, some people want to cover up their behavior. They do ministry. They go through the motions, but it's really not penetrated their own soul. And he's saying here that it's not out of any impurity in our own life. That's not why we do this. It's not because we're messed up on any reason. We don't have any other ulterior motive and why we do this. We're not trying to hide a sinful behavior. We're not trying to control you in any way. We do it because of our love for God. So we have to ask that. Is it because of a messed up life? But there's more. Is there a malicious intent to deceive? Malicious intent to deceive. And there he even says that. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any intent to deceive. Now, I think of intent to deceive. I think, you know, you've got to be a pretty bad person to really want to deceive someone. I mean, that's pretty bad. And I'm reminded of uh, Scientology. And in America, we have a religion. I wouldn't even call it a religion, but it's Scientology. People see it as a religion. They even call themselves the Church of Scientology. And it's found by the science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard. He wrote a book called Dianetics. Now, many Hollywood celebrities subscribe to Scientology, such as Tom Cruise, Jenna Elfman. There have been many different uh, celebrities that have been in Scientology. And they present themselves as uh, a church, and it's about mental clarity and all of these things. And, and I, I, I have the hardest time because L. Ron Hubbard himself said... He said that if you want to make real money, create a religion. The man, it's a religion that was created in the 20th century. It's something that you can't find any other historical thing for. And yet people are giving their lives and all their money. I mean, this is a malicious intent to deceive on his part. 
And here, he said, Paul's even saying that. We're not trying to deceive you. We're not trying to get your money. We're not trying to, to steal your family. We're not trying to exert control over you. We don't have a malicious intent to deceive or manipulate you. We care about you. We have to ask ourselves those questions when we're ministering to, to people. Do we have a real desire for them to come to Jesus, or do we have an ulterior motive behind it? Is it so that they'll like us? Is it so that we can control them? Is it so that, you know, there could be a million different reasons why. We even might try to get them to do different behaviors, but the, the question is, is we want them to, real question is, is are they reconciled to God? Do they know who Jesus is? That's the question. So Paul's saying this doesn't spring from um, any attempt to deceive but just as we have been, in verse 4, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, manipulation. That's the idea. Flattering speech. He's trying to get them to do what he wants them to do. Again, it comes down to that manipulation. Where is their, their heart? As you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Now, this is another statement. Another question we need to ask yourself, ourselves, do I have a morbid desire for monetary gain? Do I have a morbid desire for monetary gain? We know this. There's a lot of false teachers that are out there today, and most of them are on the church channel or TBN. Again, we, we've talked about this several times where they say, do you want to receive a blessing? Then you need to get this. And there are churches, as a matter of fact, an African independent church, several of them in Nigeria, where there are pastors that stand up and they say, bring, a stat, bring your money, all your money, lay it on the altar, and then God will promise to bless it. Well, Scripture doesn't say that. I mean, we do recognize there is a principle in Scripture that if we give unto the Lord, that he will bless. But we don't do it as a means of manipulating God. Or getting money for ourselves. I mean, there was even a, I was seeing a YouTube video, a disgusting video. It had Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis. And they were talking about their reasons why they need to have private jets. They're talking about the reasons for private jets. And they said so that they can pray undisturbed. Well, you need to pay millions of dollars to pray undisturbed. You know, I've been on a lot of flights in my life. And I'll tell you, sitting around some people, that makes me pray more. <laughs> But you don't need that. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus had no place to lay his head. He didn't need a private jet. But we see that there are some that do that. Some people come and preach the word of God so that they can take your money. That's not what we do. And I thank God for that. We recognize that we are all stewards. And not just of money, of souls, of time, talents. But we have to ask ourselves that. Am I doing it to make money, to look better, to gain more followers. I know of a guy who was speaking to a theologian. He was a pastor. And he said, I want to speak out on this issue. Then I can get more web traffic to my website. What is that? You get more likes. You get more people to follow you. That's not the gospel. Not about following you. It's about following him. It's about following him. But you have a morbid desire for monetary gain. And then, how about this one? Look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God, he's saying that we're approved by God, not by men, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And then verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made the demands as apostles of Christ. 
He's saying here, we're not here to please you. Because, you know, there is a temptation when you go into ministry to please people. And we have to ask ourselves that. Do we have a misplaced craving for approval? A misplaced craving for approval. Now, in my small group, we talked about this, and we came to the conclusion that we are, all of us are perpetually in junior high. What I mean by that is this. We want to be accepted, and we don't want to stand out from those around us. We want, we want to be like everybody else for the most part. We don't want to stick out. We want people to, to accept us. We want to fit in with everybody. The fact is, is we can make the approval of people and put that over the approval of God. And I see that. We see that all the time. There's a reason why people in our community are in astronomical debt. Because we believe that we deserve what our neighbor does. So we put all of our money there, and we want to have everything that they do so we can fit in. So we can't be in this astronomical debt. See, these are idols that we have because we want the approval of people more than we want the approval of God. We have to ask ourselves that. Why do I do this? Do I do it because I want the crowds to like me, the people to like me? I remember when I, early on in the ministry here, I'm going to have a confession moment right now. I was talking with uh, Tim Badal, and I was like, I'm frustrated that people aren't responding to the gospel like I thought they would. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, I'm just, I'd like to see the church grow. He's like, you could grow the church. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you could have a church filled by tomorrow. And I went, no, you couldn't, not by tomorrow. He goes, yeah, tell people what they want to hear. You could have a packed church. That hit me. If, I, if that was my, my idol, I mean, it, seriously, if I wanted to pack this church, this is what I would do. I would talk about America, and I would slam Islam all the time. Seriously. I, I'm not joking. You want to talk about that, put God and country together, and you'll fill a church. I promise you that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is different than that. The gospel calls us to love people with a sacrificial love. It calls us to sacrifice ourselves so that other people might know who Jesus is. That's what the gospel calls us to do. The gospel calls us to take care of the hungry and the thirsty and those who are naked and to welcome the stranger. That's what the gospel calls us to do. I mean, I could talk about that all day long and, th- and talk about how to threaten people and get them all motivated and people a bit all up in arms. But that's not the gospel. You could talk about that. You can even put the God, God in it and put them together. And then it becomes syncretism. But the pure, unadulterated gospel of God says that we're to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. Our citizenship is a heavenly one before it is an earthly one. Now, again, I'm not against our country. I am so grateful to have freedoms where we are. And for those that have come from other lands, I've talked with you, and you said, it's great to be here. I was talking with a friend of mine, Godfrey, who is, uh, works with our ministry in Uganda, and he said he was here for the last election. And he goes, I love America. There's no one standing with an AK-47 at the election poll. We have a free society. Now, we have problems? You bet. We have threats? Yes, as a nation. But as Christians within this country, our goal is to love and to show by our lives who Jesus is. We have to make sure of that and make sure that we're not trying to get the approval of men, but living for the audience of one. That's whose approval we need most of all. God's approval. And His and His alone.
So, our, we've looked at Mark's motives, and now we need to look at the need for our need to develop proper methods for ministry. Methods. And I'm not looking at one specific method per se. It's more characteristics of what we're going to have to do. How do we do this ministry? You know, the Bible doesn't give us methods per se, but it does show us the attitudes of our hard characteristics of what we are to do and be. And we need to see that ministry involves, first of all, constant work. Constant work. You know, David Kim said this, The Great Commission will not be fulfilled with our spare time or spare money. With our spare time. Ministry rarely fits between nine and five. And doesn't always let you off to watch your favorite TV show or the football game. It doesn't. It doesn't. It means constant work. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. See, he worked, labored, and toiled. He did it to raise money for himself so as not to impose the people in Thessalonica. It was a fledgling ministry, so he worked, raised money, and then ministered. He did it night and day. Ministry doesn't always know work hours. Now, it also requires us to have this, to give careful consideration of the example that we leave. What is the example that you're leaving for your family, for your friends? See, Paul was very conscious of his example. Look at the second part of verse 9. That we may not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you who are believers. He was very conscious of what he was leaving behind in the life that he was showing them. What are you showing your children or those around you about your life and what you value? What are you? I mean, re- really, think about it. What, what, are you, what are you watching? What websites are you surfing? What about your phone? How are you spending your money? We have to be careful of that with our kids. I'm always afraid that's where I fail. I hope my kids see Jesus more than anything else. You know, I'm reminded of Warren Worsby. Warren Worsby was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago for several years, a very prolific author, great man of God. Uh, he was also the teacher for ministry, international ministry called Back to the Bible out of Lincoln, Nebraska. And when he got hired at Back to the Bible, he went there to uh, purchase a home. And if you know anything about Warren Worsby, he is an extensive reader, voracious reader. And his wife actually told the real estate agent, she said, we're looking for a library with a house attached, to give you an idea. Um, and when he, he gave the kind of the parameters, this is the, how much we can afford, and they came, the real estate agent took the parameters, took them to the house, and it was massive, massive, massive house. And his wife was overjoyed, and he was mortified. And she, she said, well, these are the parameters you gave. He said, I know, I know, you have to excuse me, but I can't live in this house. He said, why? They said, because I'm going to be a t- t- Bible teacher to thousands, if not millions of people. And there will be people that will seek to know where I live. And how can I minister to the most poorest farmer when I'm living in such, and in their mind, it's very grand, exquisite, too big. He was just very conscious of his example. We have to be very careful in that. I don't want to draw too much of a parallel, but he was very conscious of the example that he was leaving, leaving to others. We need to be careful of that too. What are we telling? Not just by our ministry, but by, our, by the things that we sometimes don't even think about. How we spend our money, how we interact. 
Not to say we don't enjoy things. That's not it. If God has blessed us with that, there's not a problem to engage and indulge. We just have to remember we're stewards of all that God has given us. Paul was aware of the example that he left behind, but he was also he also had tremendous compassion toward disciples. Tremendous compassion toward disciples. He refers to himself as a spirit, spiritual parent twice in this passage. In verse seven, he refers to himself to himself as being gentle, like a nursing mother with her own children. He was desirous of them to share with them the gospel in his life. And in verse eleven, he identifies himself as a father who exhorted, encouraged and charge them. Now, if I were to do ease, I would say exhorted, encouraged, and electrified. He charged them. He pushed them to live a life worthy of God. He is their spiritual parent. He felt this depth in his being for their spiritual development. He cares for them deeply. But he also says that they lived, that the, 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 the apostles lived holy, righteous, and blameless lives. And there's a principle we can draw from that. As a church, we need to make sure that we are, that our conduct is pure. Our conduct is pure. If we're to have an effective ministry, and a method of ministry means constant work, careful of consideration of the example that we live behind, uh, leave behind, compassion toward other, and a conduct that is pure. Because they need to make sure, they themselves needed to make sure that they were immune to slanderous accusations. And he shows that. The accusations came, but they were immune to them. They couldn't stick to them. See, and we need to ask ourselves that for us. Is our conduct pure? We need to look at our lives very intently. How do we spend our money? And if we were to look at our, if we were to open up your bank account, what would we learn about you, about your life? Not only finances, but what are you watching online? Where are you going at night? Where are you shopping? How is your shopping? How are you doing at your job? Who have you been chatting with? If we're to truly minister effectively, then we must renounce secret sins. We can't hide them any longer. We must confess, repent of it, and turn from it. Why hold on to it? Why hold on to the guilt? Why try to live in the shadows of shame? God doesn't want you to live in the shadowlands. He calls us into the light. He wants us to confess and repent of our sin and be freed from it. He wants to give us new life, purpose, and peace that goes beyond circumstance. And he wants us all to live lives of integrity and purity before him. He wants to transform you so that you will be the, become the champion of that which glorifies God. He wants us to be championing that which glorifies God, to push it. This is, notice that he says he's a spiritual father and he wants them to grow. He exhorts them. He encourages them. Then he challenges them to live their life differently. One that would be pleased, that God would be pleased by. Not to gain God's favor. We already have it in Christ. But one that makes God smile. What Paul is doing is showing us a grid for discipleship. How we're to grow as believers in Christ. Each of us is to be discipled. How we are to be, shows us how we are to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says here in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You know, it means sharing a life on life. See, when I was a new believer in Christ, I, I, uh, I had no one to teach me. Though my grandfather was a pastor, he didn't have a lot of education. So the message was, uh, almost every Sunday was salvation message, every Sunday. 
So there wasn't a lot of discipleship. I didn't know what it meant to be a disciple. And I, I found myself at, uh, wanting to go to Bible college, and I went to, to Moody Bible Institute. And I came home that summer, and I was so excited to do ministry, and I saw what was going on in my school that I just decided to create a ministry. I didn't know what I was doing, so I created a ministry. And I created this ministry for teenagers. And next thing I know, we're having 40 kids on, an, on a given night. Now, in my small town, that's about one quarter of the entire student body. And so we had my friend's farm, and we're meeting at it, and they're looking at me telling, what do we do? I'm like, I have no clue. We're making this up as we go along. And I, and, and, but we're having Bible studies, and we're, we're teaching the Word of God, and we're playing games, and we're interacting with the kids, and we're sharing our lives. And I go back to, to Moody, and I sit in the cafeteria, and I'm talking to, to a friend across the table when this big bearded professor sits down beside me. And he looks like Dale Moody. He has this big, giant gray beard, and he has a toothpick in his mouth and these big glasses. And he starts listening to me. And, and I, I'm a little intimidated because he's a lot older than I am. And he leans across the table and he looks at me and he addresses me. He goes, hey, he's hearing the story of me tell this ministry. and goes, have you ever been discipled? And I said, no, that sounds bad. Um, he goes, be at my office tomorrow morning at, two, uh, tomorrow morning at nine. So I go to his office and I sit down. And he sits down across from me. His name is Dr. Leonard Rasher. He was the chairman of the Practical Christian Ministry Department at Moody Bible Institute for over 30 years. And now he starts telling me about what it means to follow Jesus. And he has me open the Word of God. And he teaches me what it means to be a Christian. How I was different that I had become a Christian. Now how, how I knew I could, was saved. How I needed to witness. How to pray. I mean, he shared all these things. And every week he had me come back. Every Tuesday I was there. And he would speak for two hours and telling story after story after story after story. But he discipled me. See, the question, that's what Paul's saying. We shared our very lives with you. And not only after did he teach me, then he said, I want you to partner in ministry with me. So he took me to a Bible study, and he said, you're going to work with the kids. He didn't give me a lot of instructions. He just kind of threw me in. But then after we'd get done, he'd ask me questions. And he was discipling me. He was growing me. He was modeling for me. And I learned what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Now, here's the question. Are you discipling someone? Or do you need to be discipled? We all need to grow. Every single one of us needs to grow. Many of us have a religion but not a relationship. And if you, need to be a, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you need to be discipled. You can't just sit there. I mean, and there's not an in-between. You are either a missionary or a mission field. There's no in-between. You're a missionary or a mission field. Which are you? You're either out sharing or someone's sharing with you because you haven't really responded yet. So we need to ask ourselves those questions. If we're going to be really ready for what God has for us, we need to say, here I am, Lord. Do with me what you will. Disciple me. Grow me. Help me to be the person that you want me to be and show what it is that you want me to do. And then we become champions for that which glorifies God. Have you been discipled? Has someone shown you how to follow Jesus? Showing you how to place your faith and trust in Him. Showing you how to tell people of who Jesus is. That's what He's calling us to do in order for us to be at the ready for what God has for us. We need to surrender and ask Him, Lord, show me. And you need to ask someone who you know, whom you know that has a walk with God that is greater than yours to help disciple you. To help model that for you. Because I believe that God wants to do something amazing here. I believe God is doing something amazing here. And I believe he wants to use, help use you all to do it.
for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of my own weaknesses. But yet, Lord, I'm reminded of your power. I'm reminded of the fact that you can make a straight line with a crooked stick. That you can take us broken as we are and use us to do great things. Lord, we don't have to be extraordinary. We just need to be ordinary because we know that we have an extraordinary God. You are the God who is able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine according to the power that is at work within us. And Lord, I pray that you might grow us. Help us to all be ready for what it is that you have for us. Lord, help us to check ourselves, to check our motives, to see if they are pure before you because, Lord, we need you and you alone. We need your gospel more than anything else. We need the power of your spirit to transform hearts and minds, to call people to the end of themselves. Lord, help transform us from the inside out and help us to be courageous, to be bold, testifying to your greatness. Lord, remove any secret sins. Bring them to light. Help us to confess them. And Lord, if there's someone here who has not yet placed their faith and trust in you, they might have a religion but not a relationship. Lord, I pray that you show them that you are the living Savior, that they need to embrace you. And Lord, I pray that you raise up an army of disciples who are passionate followers of you, using their giftedness, using the experiences that you have taken them through and that you have delivered many of them from to testify to others about your greatness. Lord, your body is diverse. We come from all different backgrounds, different countries, different languages, different cultures, different experiences, and yet, Lord, we are one because of you. And Lord, I pray that you continue to do a work in us that only you can do. And Lord, please help us not to go through the motions, but help this to be a place where an unbeliever drives by and they say something God is doing. God is doing something there that causes them to turn in, to walk through the doors in here, or to come in contact with someone who is a follower of you that finds themselves as this is their church home, and that they can speak words of truth and that they are transformed. Lord, let your spirit overflow from us into the community around us, into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, and into our workplaces. Lord, give us a holy boldness to make your name known. Help us to be truly on fire for the glory of your name. Help us to be people that are praying and fasting before you. Lord, help us to be people that are speaking your truth and studying your word. Help us to be people that are caring for those who are afar from you. Lord, help us to be those who give food to those who are hungry, to give drink to those that are thirsty, those who welcome truly the stranger, who love our enemies the way that you loved yours. Lord, please do something within us. Give us a holy yearning for you and what it is that you want to do. Lord, speak to us and use us and help break the old wineskins that have kept us in. As your power of your spirit works in and through us, Lord, Please use us. Lord, we want to be used of you more than anything else that we might be ready for the master's use. So Lord, transform us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.